Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we are joined by Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John as we continue our look at the Epistle of James. And today we're going to be taking a look at chapter four, verse 13 through five, six. Uh, And let's start with hearing uh, some of chapter four there. This is 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Last week, we saw in chapter four, James's exhortation to these persecuted Jewish Christians to not be worldly, which is in that chapter, uh, not to fight the way that the world fights, uh, to not speak evil against one another, to not murder or, or covet and more. And I'd like to jump in today with where you start in your commentary, Jeff. It, it could seem that James here is addressing sort of these traveling merchants or those who are involved in different business dealings. Uh, and many commentaries would point us in that direction. That direction being that James's hearers were tempted to get power for themselves, maybe through trade and, and business or being shrewd in that area. But you mentioned that there's another way to look at this that does more justice to the book as a whole. Could you start us off by, by discussing that? Yeah, sure. For, for many years, I did uh, conferences or preached on James and came to this passage and just thought it was odd and out of place, uh, especially since most commentators uh, think this is just about an address to Christian businessmen and, and their practices. And, and of course, there's obviously some uh, general kind of wisdom here about uh, what is your life? It's vapor, you know, Ecclesiastes kind of thing. Uh, but um, I started to, to think more carefully about it and look at the fact that you have come now in verse 13, and then you have come now in 5.1. And so the come now in 5.1 is addressed to the rich and to those who are, and we'll get to this, to those who are pressing the the, the Christians, the Jewish covenantally rich, theocratically rich. Um, and then I also notice that there's no address to the brothers here. Come now, brothers, you who say. Uh, there is, of course, back in verse 11 of chapter 4, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers. But these two are linked together with come now, they're also linked together with the fact that they're not addressed to the brothers. And so I began to think, well, maybe this, maybe both of these are addressed to their oppressors uh, in, in a prophetic kind of rhetoric. Um, I think it's pretty clear, at least to me, that in chapter five, verse one and following, that these rich oppressors are the Jerusalem uh, interrogators, the Jerusalem officials who are sending out the inquisitors and all the rest and are using their riches in ways that God never intended. We'll get to that, as I said. Uh, But also this passage here too, um, this is like a parable. It's like a riddle. And uh, riddles are the grammar of 
of uh, prophetic denunciation often in the scriptures. Um, and they are, of course, in Jesus' usage in the Gospels. And so if this is a riddle, if this is a parable, if this is a prophetic parable, then who's being addressed here? Who's doing the business? And what is this business that they're traveling around doing? And it certainly fits uh, with the context of the inquisitors like Paul and others who were sent out from Jerusalem to do the business of gathering up the, these Christian heretics uh, in their, in their, from their perspective and uh, interrogating them and even you know, torturing them and killing them in many ways. Um, and, and this fits also with Jesus' words in Matthew 23 when he pronounces woe on the scribes and Pharisees, remember, and he talks about them also uh, traveling across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Uh, later on in that chapter, Jesus is going to uh, prophesy that he's going to send prophets and wise men and scribes to them, but they will kill them and crucify them and flog them in their synagogues and persecute them from town to town. And Jesus warns them about that and says that um, their blood is going to be on their head, basically. And, and so reading this passage in that light makes more sense to me, especially in the context of James. The other thing to, to say about this is that and in the commentary, I list numerous passages where the language of business is used to describe what we might call spiritual transactions, uh, using economic relations to communicate what's going on with how people mishandle the wealth, the covenantal wealth that they give them. You see this all through the scriptures. Just one example, if you remember uh, in Revelation 18, uh, one of the lamentations that comes on fallen Jerusalem is that the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls. And then at the end of that passage in verse 13, you have the, in other words, human souls. So these merchants from Jerusalem are not being condemned for unjust business practices, though that was probably involved. Their condemnation has to do with the squandering theocratic wealth the Lord has given them for service among the nations. It's not about monetary transactions, but human souls. And I think that's what's going on here too, that this, this prophetic parable is connected with what comes next in chapter five, this infelicitous chapter breaks, and they're both connected together and, and deal with the rich oppressors. Jeff, a lot of that kind of makes sense to me in terms of the uh, context and some of the links that you draw out in your commentary and so on. Um, something that I wonder about, though, is, is, is verse 15. So the, um, the corrective to these people is instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It, it, it sounds quite weak if this is addressed to people who are basically going out and making the other, others sons of hell and kind of persecuting and, and so on. It, it feels a fairly uh, 
a fairly mild corrective, you know. So um, what do you make of that? Or do you think there are sort of multiple levels to this or, or yeah, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, very good question. And I think it's, I think it's a segue into James five, you know, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it is sin. Um, and you could ask if these Jewish zealots really know what they're doing. Um, and the way I've explained this is on the cross, Jesus prayed to his father that they, that his, his, uh, murderers, basically his, his executors would be forgiven for they'd know not what they do. And at that time, the Jewish leaders only had a testimony from Jesus. They didn't know what they didn't know what was going on. They uh, it should have been enough to to uh, establish their culpability. But the Lord was going to be gracious and give them a second witness. So the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, and you have the testimony of two witnesses. And now, as uh, as Peter stands up and preaches, as the apostles go out, you have this uh, this strong testimony that they know. Um, even Peter in his first appearance before the Jewish leader says, I know that you acted in ignorance. Remember that. Um, mm. but now the Holy spirit has come. And I, I think that, um, th this is a reminder that they ought to know what the Lord approves of here, what the Lord wills verse 15 or what the Lord approves and do the right thing. But now they glory in their arrogance. So I don't know that that's weak. I think that's pretty strong. They glory in their arrogance and all such glorying is evil. So you know the right thing to do. You're not doing it. And for you, it is sin. That then leads into the severe condemnation uh, that comes in the next paragraph. I mean, that, that's the way I explain it. I, I think that works for me anyway. Right. I mean, I wasn't thinking so much about verse 17 or 16 being weak, but just the impression I get from 15 is that the problem is not so much. So if the Lord will, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So I get the impression that today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year and trade there isn't in and of itself wrong. Um, but the way they they are doing it is wrong it's not with the lord's um uh sovereignty or, or or providence in mind that that's kind of the impression that i get at least from 15 yeah okay um you know if you think about this too again in this context this covenantal uh spiritual context here of the book of acts and what's going on in james uh it's certainly not wrong for the apostles to go out from town to town and do the business, the Lord's business. Okay, That's what they're doing. That's what Paul's doing. That's what a lot of the apostles are doing. They're going back and forth, and they're asking what if the Lord wills that they be here or there. Remember, Paul has to receive the uh, testimony of the Spirit, whether he goes into Europe or not, that kind of thing. I, I think that fits, but there's a, there is a, a alternate uh, kind of program going on here, another business from the Jews, which is you know the flip side of that where they are going out and pursuing these christians um and they're they're doing it the wrong way so it's not wrong to be go out and do make pro make uh, converts make proselytes but it's wrong to do it the way that they're doing it um yeah that's that's my response hmm. to what extent should 
we read this against the backdrop of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where much of the same imagery is used, the corroding gold, which is a arresting image, and the laying up of treasure in the wrong place. Now, Jesus clearly uses the language of trading and, and gathering gold, whatever it is, as a spiritual metaphor. So we see it on a, a number of occasions in um, the parable of the talents, for instance, or um, the parable of the unjust steward. This sort of trading has to do with spiritual dealings as well. So there's clearly that level to it, I think, is legitimate. There is a coming day of judgment, and that day of reckoning will come upon all the houses of all the great houses of Israel. It will come upon, most of all, the great house, the house of the temple, which has become a means of devouring widows' houses, as we see in Luke and elsewhere. But I wonder whether focusing too narrowly on that excludes other aspects to this, which is very much in line with the Old Testament prophets, where the house of the temple is seen as what's taking place there is symptomatic of what's taking place in the broader body of the nation. And so the rich in their behavior to the poor is partly exercised through the temple, partly seen in the trading of the commerce of religion, but also seen in other forms of commerce. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I certainly wouldn't want to argue against that at all. I think the way that the, the Israelite leaders, the, the Jewish leaders, excuse me, at this time were behaving certainly had a trickle-down effect to all sorts of other endeavors uh, common in, in common life. Yes. Um, I would even say that the past, since we're dealing with that passage, end of chapter four, that certainly there is a broader application to uh, to businessmen and to, <laughs> um, to the way we, we conduct our affairs, uh, our financial affairs, certainly. Uh, the way we think about our life, what is our life? We're a bit of mist. We're a vapor. Okay, that's Ecclesiastes kind of stuff. That's 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 certainly true. And also, I would add this: um, this if this is a parable, like I'm arguing, uh, verses thirteen through seventeen, then by exposing the evil of these traveling merchants from Jerusalem, James is also warning the Christian zealots against mimicking the same sort of behavior. So their pursuers are engaged in this kind of behavior, and it appears, if 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 I'm right, as we've gone through the the epistle, that uh, James's hearers are tempted to mimic the behavior of the zealots in their aggressive behavior in fighting back against them. Well, then these angry Christian leaders are tempted to do the same kind of thing and they, they should not do that. Okay. So, you know, again, Matthew 16, beware the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, so, so this does have an application to Christians, both the first come now prophecy and the second one, as you mentioned, uh, Alistair, uh, about riches and how the Jewish leaders have use their riches. Both of them have applications to, to believers, <clears throat> and many different levels of application, I think. Jeff, this image of um, people who are like a mist, which appears for a, a while and then vanishes, um, 
I like, and if I understand you right, this is the way you're reading it. I, I like the idea that this is um, referring to judgment um, against God's enemies rather than just a, a mere missed something that's transient and ephemeral and, and so on. Um, I've probably mentioned before, I think, that um, I've been going through Psalm 37 and I've seen many, many uh, contact points with James going through it. And, and just to pick up a few, almost at random from chapter four, I mean, there we saw that the believers' uh, desires were misguided. They were asking the wrong thing and therefore not getting it and so forth. And they were to refrain from anger uh, and, and lust and all the rest. And, you know, picking up then uh, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Befriend faithfulness, um, you know, so to rightly uh, order your, your desires. Um, be still before the Lord. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers um, in his way, over the man who carries out evil, um, uh, evil desires and so forth. And then as it continues, um, in a little while, it says the wicked will be no more. You will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. The meek instead will inherit the land and delight themselves. And then it still goes on. You know, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they will have abundance. And then it says, but the wicked will perish. Um, the enemies of the Lord are like the glory of pastures and they vanish like smoke. Um, they they vanish and flee away. And um seems to pick up so much imagery and, and overall thrust of James and, and to liken these wicked as, as, you know, a puff of smoke that prospers for a time and, and, and then it's gone, you know. Yeah, that's, that's good. Notice how also it connects back to the beginning of the letter where James said, let the lowly brother boast or glory in his exaltation and the rich, not necessarily, it doesn't say rich brother, but the rich, could be rich brother, could be both. The rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower fades and its beauty perishes. Of course, uh, references there back to Isaiah, but also Psalm 37, like you said. So the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Um, so in the midst of his business ventures. Uh, and then you get to end of James 4 and you have... Again, like I think this is prophetic and judgmental. Your, your life is a mist that's going to pass away. And then if you read uh, James 5, 1 through 6, as describing the manner in which the rich man will pass away or vanish like a mist or, or uh, wither like a flower, that's described then pretty carefully in chapter 5. Um, and... Indeed, even in chiastically, you you can connect, mm -hmm. um, you can connect this all together, which it's impossible to really lay that out in a podcast. <laughs> see it. <laughs> how does this judgment in chapter five? Uh, not to jump the gun there too much, but uh, how does that relate to the destruction of the temple? And what happened in AD 70 with the gold and the silver corroding and, um, you know, the riches being rotted. I know these things are spoken of in the present tense that they have rotted and the gold and silver have corroded. But clearly when we read some of these things, especially in the context of being persecuted by unbelieving Jews, 
this seems to be full of that kind of imagery. That's where their treasure is. Yeah. Maybe we should back up just a bit and sure. come back to that, uh, Brian. I think that's right. Again, I think it's important to identify the rich here. And who are these rich? Are these just like Christian plantation owners, which is what you get oftentimes in commentaries, especially modern commentaries? Um, or are these the rich covenantally, theocratically rich Jews. And it, it seems to me that the riches here described, their garments, their robes, their gold and silver, um, all of that points to Jerusalem and to the temple treasuries, to all the wealth that they have, not just spiritual wealth, but real wealth given mm. to minister and serve the nations. And then, uh, and that's the treasure they've laid up. And notice they've laid it up in the last days. Uh, so these are the last days of the old covenant, last days of the old world. And then verse four, the wages of the laborers who've mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. Again, it's always appropriate to address Christian landowners about paying their employees. Of course, that's, of course, that's right. But they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Surely that's a reference back to Jesus sending out harvesters into the field. I mean, that's something that uh, is described for us in the synoptics and in the gospel of John. The harvest is rich. The harvest is ready. He sends out his apostles. He sends out his new prophets. They go out into the fields, and what happens? They're, they are not given their wages by the leaders of the Jews, by the rich. Uh, and so it's these people who've lived gloriously on the land and in self-indulgence, and they fatten their hearts in a day of slaughter. So the slaughter is coming. And ultimately, it's because they have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Now, that's ambiguous. Um, it could be that that's about Jesus. It could also be that that's about the righteous Christians, followers of Jesus, united to Jesus. And Jesus didn't resist you. Uh, neither are most of the Christians, although in the book of James, that's an issue. Um, so, so I think everything here points to not just a general condemnation of unjust business practices by people that own land in Israel. But this is, these are the stewards of the land. These are the, these are the ones who've been given the wealth and they're not using it as God intended them to use it. They're hoarding it. They're uh, using it for their own self-interest. They're, they haven't recognized the righteous one, the Messiah. They, in fact, they killed him. They're killing his followers, um, and they're in trouble because these cries have reached the Lord of armies, and he's coming in judgment. There's something very unique about all this, isn't there, in terms of the style of address? I mean, we, we basically have here James uttering what I see, at least, as a prophecy against various people and addressing them directly in the second person, you know, you who do this, um, this shall happen to you, howl, wail, etc. Now, obviously, in 
Paul and Peter, there are many prophecies, but it, it seems to have more of a, a, a more of a third person um, aspect to it, talking about what uh, will happen to various people in in the days to come, rather than speaking directly to the people who are going to be judged. And um, yeah, I, I wonder what exactly we're to um, make of that, and and uh, what it might tell us about James and his style of address um, more generally obviously connects back very well to a lot of Jesus's uh, um, prophecies, but yeah, I'd I'd be interested uh, in your thoughts on that. But but, uh, isn't this pretty common uh, with uh, Hebrew prophets? Uh, They will prophesy against Moab or Egypt or Babylon or Assyria directly and use the second person plural. You all, this, this, this. Um, Absolutely. It's really common with that. Uh, I'm just struck by the fact that it's not so common in other New Testament epistles. And and so it kind of stands out in that sense. Yeah. And well, I guess the point I was going to make and see if this helps, helps me is even though that's true and these, you know, these prophecies, these letters were written to these uh, rulers in Babylon or Egypt or wherever, uh, it was the people of God who read them uh, and who heard them uttered. And I think here, too, um, at the end of the epistle, if, if, if we've been right about James's concern about the way these Christian exiles have behaved and reacted to their persecution, here at the end, he gives them a great deal of hope. Okay? So on the one hand, yeah, he's calling the Jewish oppressors of the church to repent. Uh, but what's going on more than that, I think, is He's given the church, these people, a concrete hope that they'll be vindicated, okay? Their suffering's not in vain. It's not pointless. Um, the Lord of armies has heard their cries, okay? And so Jesus will deliver them and vindicate them in time uh, and judge the Jewish nation for their apostasy, for the rebellion. Um, and... And it, this, this again, this is also, also what happens in the Hebrew prophets as well. Uh, the Hebrew prophets utter these prophecies against the other, other countries so that Israel will have hope, especially the remnant. Um, at the same time, <laughs> there's a third kind of use, and that is Israel will see what God does to people who misuse the privileges that he gives them, and they'll learn their lesson. Um, and so this also has this third kind of thing, you know, judgment begins in the house of God, uh, in the house of Israel, but it's also going to be a, a, a big lesson for the church too, and how she uses, holds, uh, her wealth. Might be worth thinking about the behavior of these people in contrast to the behavior of the early church, the actions of the church in Jerusalem, at the beginning of Acts stand out in part because they are selling all of their real estate within the city and its surrounding area. They know that this is doomed territory and accumulating wealth in Jerusalem and its surroundings. It's not going to last for more than a generation. And so the wise thing to do is to heed the prophecy and to use all of the wealth from selling that to store up treasures in heaven where there will not be that sort of corruption. Now, that's something that is a more general lesson for us, but there's 
a more concentrated significance within that time where you couldn't accumulate intergenerational wealth within Jerusalem. They just it wasn't going to survive AD 70. And so the warnings that Jesus gives about the man, uh, the rich man who's building bigger barns and needs to recognize that his life is about to be required of him, or the warning to the unjust steward of the one unjust steward that those who see the unjust steward should learn the example that he's about to be removed. And now he must take that small window of opportunity to make friends for himself with the unjust unrighteous mammon and then jesus teaching to his disciples to sell all their to sell their possessions give to the needy and provide themselves with money bags that don't grow old and treasure in the heavens that won't fail there is a thief at the door there is a conflagration about to start and it's it's inevitability is seen in the um the way that this is spoken of as a reality that is already present their riches have already rotted, their garments are already moth-eaten. It has already come upon them, but they don't yet know it. They're in a doomed house. And those sorts of warnings seen against the practice of the church, I think we can see more clearly what the proper response would have been and then how they failed. And that connection, I think, with riches more generally, I think is seen in the way that the religious leaders are again and again presented as driven by concerns of accumulating wealth from everything such as Jesus teaching against the Pharisees who uh, love money to the way in which we see the great investment in the um, temple, the wealth of it and its treasuries, the way in which the temple is condemned as becoming a house of merchandise, and then the ways that we see um, Jesus betrayed for money. All these sorts of things suggest that Mammon is in some sense being enthroned in the temple, and it's part of the broader spiritual life of the nation that's been corrupted. And the proper response is to sell all of those things and to build and to lay up treasure in heaven, to invest in the project of the kingdom of God, which will not fail. Yeah, that's that's extremely helpful. Um, just a side note to that, Alistair, which I think you'll agree with, is is having that wealth and is understanding what it's intended for is um, Israel was made wealthy by the Lord, of course, and was supposed to use that wealth in the service of the nations. That's, that's the ironic uh, twist in, for example, revelation 18, where Israel has all this wealth, but instead of serving the nations, um, she became a hoarder, if you, like, as you described it. And yeah, that's a, that's a great lesson. It's not it's not like we have to divest ourselves of wealth uh, as Christians or as the church, but we better be careful how we use it and whether we trust in it or not. Uh, that comes up over and over again, as you mentioned, Alistair. So even the even the, even the disciples had to be weaned from that because when Jesus walks out of the temple, remember at the end of Matthew twenty three and the beginning of Matthew twenty four, and He's talking about what's going to happen to the scribes and Pharisees and leaders of the Jews. And the apostles say, well, hey, look at this temple. Isn't this magnificent and wonderful? And look at the riches. And and Jesus says, that's all going to come down. Um, So don't trust in that. You know, don't be like the Jews of Jeremiah's day. Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, We're we're secure. We're safe because look at this magnificent 
uh, building we have and the riches we've stored in the treasury, um, that's that's not going to work. You can't trust in those riches. That's what gets you in trouble. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the situation in Israel as a jubilee uh, year draws near. It's like you can accumulate land and buy up all this stuff, and you're effectively buying a number of harvests before the jubilee comes when all the land is going to be redistributed again and just sort of go back to its original owners. And it feels like there's, um, as AD 70 draws near, that, that same sense that all this stuff that you can be um, accumulating and, and putting trust in, there needs to be just a wholesale revaluation of it because none of it's going to last. It's 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 all going to go, go back and, and sort of uh, back to square one again. Yeah, good. Hey, Brian, I feel like uh, I sidetracked your earlier question and I forgot what it was. No, it got answered. Um, it was regarding the gold and the temple and all of that. So, yeah, right. I think there's an immediate application to the church now. Um, you know, these things happen in these big moments in the Bible that then become a paradigm that we can look at other movements in the church. Obviously, things like the Protestant Reformation is a is a big moment in church history where uh, a church dies and a new church is reborn, you could say. But this also happens at an individual level, uh, at, a, at a church level, or sorry, at an individual church level and maybe a denominational level where there are things that have corrupted institutions and, and bodies and they need to be burned up and eaten away. They're not helpful to the individuals or the church at large that are a part of these things. And a lot of it's, it seems to me, I mean, I'm, I'm a young man, but it seems that a lot of clamoring for security is often tied to, to riches and to wealth, whether that be, you know, a, a denomination that wants a certain amount of power, but just, this is the way we've always done it. These are our donors to this institution. These are the people that keep us safe and fed and taken care of. And this is where our security lies. And God um, often, maybe always, brings about newness and new life in his church and new obedience and, and fresh expansion of the gospel through, through death and through burning away the old garb, I guess you could say. Um, do you think there's anything to that? And how, how do we apply that to, to uh, us today? And, and not just in generalities, but it seems like James really takes the step to, to speak out into those situations and what place does that put pastors and scholars and those who have a voice? Yeah. What, where does that put them? Are they able to, to speak into those situations and how should that be done? I hope that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And here's, here's an example of that. So in the, you know, 28 years I've been here at this church, um, there've been times when we've uh, had an influx of a lot of uh, gifts of offerings um, and have had, a, a great deal of money in the bank. And, and there's, there was one elder in particular, although all the elders agree eventually, but one elder in particular will always say, look, we need, we need to do something with this money. This, this needs to be sent out to our missionaries that we support or to somebody uh, because God has given us this money uh, for service. And, and when he says that into a context of meeting, like a session meeting, a meeting of the elders, I, I know that I have thought, oh, oh, whoa, 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 wait, this is, this is security. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen next year. We don't know what's going to happen five years from now. Uh, we need to make sure we have um, enough money in the bank 
in case some disaster happens. And eventually we all kind of come around and say, yeah, okay, there's some wisdom in that. But also we need to be careful and not find our security in our bank accounts and the amount of money we have in these various bank accounts. And so we end up, you know, giving out a great deal of it. And, and um, I think that's, that's wise. I think that's maybe an application of what you were talking about, Brian. Yeah. I, I just wonder, and this is going back to what you were saying, Brian, and I might be completely wrong about it, but I wonder if we are approaching times when there is going to be quite a major financial um, shakeup. There are um, various kind of secular authors who have um, spoken about things like this. I can't remember the author um, now, but there's a book, The End of Globalization, um, which is talking about a, a fairly major rearrangement of, of the world and of sort of trading situations in the years to come. And I do often wonder if if now is really a time to be kind of ploughing into the kingdom um, in all sorts of works and ways and concrete things. I mean, literally concrete, sort of like uh, building things, um, uh, conscious that money could start plummeting in, in various situations. Now, you know, this is not me prophesying. I, I may be um, completely wrong about that, but the, these are things to think carefully about, I think, in, in the future. Reading James, it is, and thinking about the teaching of our Lord, it's striking just how much they speak about money and how little we who have so much more money and material wealth, how little we can speak about money within our churches. It's a very awkward subject because money stands for so many things for us. As we've been discussing, it stands for security. It is something that is an object of desire. It can be a mark of value. Those things that constitute our substance, the terms that we use for these for money as well are telling. Talk about our means. And um, we have money as a sign of sovereignty. All these sorts of things are bound up with money. And we're almost cautious of speaking about it because it stands for so much for us. And if you open that, you begin to pay more attention to the differences between people, what it means to be poor, what it means to be rich, what it means to be indebted and in that sort of state of slavery, um, what it means to be investing in different things, what it means to find your security in your possessions and your wealth. And yet for all the ways that this has some sort of spiritual hold upon us, we don't have, in many cases, I think, the courage that you see in James or Jesus to actually speak into that complex of issues. Um, teaching about money within the church, I mean, the greatest association within the Western church is prosperity teaching. And then other churches tend to get a bit awkward around the subject because we know we're very wealthy by any reasonable standards. Our standard of living is off the charts compared to anything historically. And yet we see these challenges within scripture and so much of our effort is designed to soften the charge that they might have upon our lives. And I'm reminded of the picture of this often used of Gandalf trying to, to encourage um, Bilbo to give up the ring. I'm not trying to rob you, I'm trying to help you. And in many ways, our spirits are so invested in money and in 
the world that it creates around us, that when Christ speaks into our lives and calls us to deal with that relationship with money, we can often feel that he's trying to rob us. And yet our spiritual needs are often found in those places where we're most reluctant to go looking because we know what we might find there. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.